Welcome to Hope Ahead, where we share stories of help and hope for people facing addiction and mental health challenges right here in our community. Hope Ahead is brought to you by the Virtue Center, and I'm your host, Caleb Klusmeyer. Sometimes when I walk these halls, I feel like I'm not alone. We can just dig right in. We're talking with Drew Laboon. I'm Carol Bauman with Caleb Klusmeyer, and this is Hope Ahead. Drew, thank you for coming and being a part of this. Um, I'm super excited to hear your story because I already feel like we're we're going to get a story here, and um, obviously a good one because you're here, um, willing to share. So. Do you mind starting by just kind of laying the framework for your childhood? I think it's good to always yeah, start there. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Um, I am excited to, to be here today and to talk to you guys some more. Um, so it's tough, and, and, you know, in addiction and recovery, we all fight that terminal uniqueness where I think I'm so special and so different that, that I uh, – that kind of terminal uniqueness gets us killed. Um, but at the same time, my story is different, um, from a lot, but it's the same as others. So I'm excited to share it. Um, my childhood, uh, as, as a real little kid on paper, probably looked, um, perfect. Mm. Uh, it really did. If you, if you look at my early years, um, certainly most of my grade school years, on paper, I was gonna gonna grow up to do great things and, and live this perfect life. Um, parents were <clears throat> were uh, you know upper upper middle class, um, white collar family, but it was very very. Uh, my dad was very much a child of of um, of the the depression, uh, ch- or child of parents of the depression. Right. Sorry, right. child of parents of the depression. So it was very much children to be seen and not heard. Um, things are to be disciplined in the home. Um, and that worked pretty well for my older brother. But for me, I was naturally that um, loud kid, the rambunctious kid. And so there was a lot of um, <clears throat> a lot of pretty pretty intense, and it got more intense as I got older and started to rebel a little bit, physical discipline. Um, and then and then emotional um, abuse at the hands of coming from on, on from my mother's side. Uh, the emotional abuse of, listen, if you didn't do X, Y, Z, you wouldn't receive this physical punishment. Um, and then my dad was was that physical dis- disciplinarian. Um, it's crazy because if you look at it at the lens of today's way to raise kids, it was horrifying. Uh, horrifying. It didn't seem that way, you know, when I was a kid. And so there were a lot of years that I spent thinking, well, it's my fault. You know, as a kid, I was I was kind of that that little knucklehead kid, and so I I deserved those things uh, growing up, and I acted a certain way that that earned me a certain uh, punishment. <clears throat> and so, for a lot of years, I felt like, well, there's something wrong with me. But what it created is is this this emotional monster to where I'm not allowed to show emotion, mm-hmm. I'm not allowed to feel pain, that it's not okay to feel a certain way because if I do, I'm going to receive a certain punishment. Uh, for it, and so there's a lot of different different things I learned um, early on um, that definitely paved the way. 
Right. And it shaped your perspective exactly. and your and your brain too. Exactly. Like there's so much research um, and studies out there that, you know, what was modeled for you then became conditioned right. and then that took on a physical consequence in your brain and then the way you see the world, yourself and everything around you. Right. Well, at, a, at an early age, it sounds like you're kind of being taught, like whether consciously or subconsciously, that my emotion and feelings aren't valid. Right. Well, everything was was invalidating. Yeah. Um, I remember, and, and I, I always want to be careful because I, I really try to not make this, and I think you guys understand this, but but anyone listening, I always try to be real careful that it doesn't come across like I'm dogging on my parents. Right. Um, they, and the more I've thought back about it, and as I've worked through the steps of a spiritual program, I've come to un- understand that that they were never being, because there's a lot of folks that, that grow up in homes where their parents are almost intentionally or aggressively malicious, and mine were not. Mm-hmm. Mine were not in any way. They, they sincerely thought that, that what they were doing um, was good for me. Right. And was good for me and was going to teach me valuable lessons. And it did. At first, early in my life, poor valuable lessons. And now later in my life, as I've put them in perspective, I use those lessons to, to help others. And so I always want to be real clear about that. But back to, to that, it, it, yes, and it invalidated my emotions. And it, and it, it put me in a, in, a, in a box of men act a certain way, and it's not okay to show emotion. It's not okay to, to, to share those emotions unless it's, unless it's anger. Right. But fear, pain, sad, none of those were okay. Um, I remember when I was a kid, uh, early on, uh, we were in the car and we were on a road trip going somewhere. I don't even remember where it doesn't matter, but I was upset about something. And again, I don't <laughs> remember what it was. And, and, and it, my dad was pretty upset with me and I was crying in the back. Um, and I remember the first time that's the first of many times I heard him say, if you don't quit crying, I'm going to give you something to cry about. Mm. I heard that growing up too. Yeah, yeah. yeah I'm gonna I'm like, give, wait, I have something to cry about. Yeah, <laughs> I'm crying. Yeah, yeah, I'm sad rather than than saying, you know, Andrew. My parents called me Andrew as a kid. Andrew, you know, what's wrong? Mm-hmm. Let's explore what's causing this emotion in you. Right. Let's validate that, whatever it is, even if we think it's silly. Right. You know, let's let's talk about that and let's kind of go from there. That was never done. It was uh, if I make too much noise or if I cry, it's going to give me something to cry about, and then I better stop crying. It gave me a pretty high pain tolerance as a kid, which I guess in later years through my military career, that was a good thing. But it did. It taught me that that um, physical violence gets us to shape or allows us to shape others' behavior towards us, that um, intimidation, physical intimidation, um, is, is a way to get others to do what we want to do. Uh, and which is kind of ironic and funny because I know those of you listening to podcasts can't see me, but I'm not a large man. Um, and so the idea that physical intimidation is, is what is a way to get what I want. Um, I used it and I used it a lot, uh, as a kid, even being a little guy, uh, first being a pretty significant product of being, a, of being bullied. Um, I turned into a bully as a kid cause I didn't, I didn't know any better and I was scared. And, you know, they say that, that folks that are bullied, whether it's in the home, which I was, or elsewhere, oftentimes result or resort back to that. Um, and I did. And so I, what I created, um, the, the biggest thing that, that I think that that did to me was 
uh, it, it created this monster of I'm never enough um, because I constantly felt like I was because I had such the n- negative uh, repercussions, physical and emotional. I turned me into a people pleaser. I want to please you. Right. One to not get punished, and then two because you're so negative toward me all the time. I need to earn your love. Right. right. And as long as they're happy with you, you don't need validation. Right. Mm-hmm. So performance. Exactly. Um, and it pushed me again uh, in, in in ways later in life that were the helpful, but in a toxic way, uh, ends up toxically. And so I, I quickly developed this idea that I'm never enough. And so I noticed early on as a kid, if, if I found myself in this place of if I just had that pair of shoes, everything would be okay. Yeah. Uh, if I just had this friend group, everything would be all right. If I just... Um, later on in life, if I, if I had that car or that girlfriend or, or this or that thing, um, everything would be okay. But the problem was, is, is when I did get those things, if I did, when I got those things and then I never was okay, uh, it still was never enough for me. And so never being satisfied, never feeling like enough, these feelings of, of being invalidated, um, shaped my childhood. And, um, I got very, very close to my grandmother in my early years, uh, leaned on her a lot. Um, being raised in a home that, that used faith basis, I shouldn't say faith basis, use a, a specific religious foundation to be the, the, the driving reason that they said, you know, if we don't act certain ways, God's not going to love us. For me, God and religion were very, very punitive. Um, it was very, very, um, if you don't do this thing, you're going to go to hell and got even further of if, if you don't do this thing, the emotional manipulation side was, you know, you're going to break up our family in heaven and we're not going to all be together. And so I had this fear, this, this faith-based fear. Which um, is a tremendous weight on a child. Right. Tremendous. Right. Fear is. is heavy. And I had some pretty deep-seated resentments towards... Um, God, because I had the inability as a kid, I, I could not separate God and spirituality from an organized faith or right. church or a specific church or religion. I just, I, I didn't, no one had ever explained to me and helped me understand the difference. And so I just clumped them all together. Yeah. And so I, I really de- developed some pretty strong resentments um, towards those. And I remember my first encounter um, with the substance, I was 13. 13 years old and I was in the basement of a friend's house and I remember it was on Thanksgiving um, I don't remember why I was over at a friend's house hanging out on Thanksgiving but we were in his basement and in his and he had swiped a bottle of red wine um, from his parents and uh, we're in the basement just being knucklehead kids and they start passing around this bottle of red wine and I had this fear that if my parents find out what's going to happen but then on the other side this fear of if I don't take a drink these kids are going to think I'm not cool and I need somebody's validation. And for me, I needed whoever's validation was in front of me at the time. And so I was willing to lie, to act out and to do certain things that normally I never would have done if I didn't have those person, I needed your validation right in front of me then. And so at that time, those friends were right there. And so I'm going to do an act in a certain way to keep their validation. Uh, And so that bottle was passed to me and I took a big long drink of it. And I remember it was gross 
and didn't like it. And all the kids were joking about, oh, this this wine is so nasty. Oh, oh, oh it's so gross. And and I remember thinking, it is disgusting. But within a few seconds, I felt it warming all the way down. And then within a couple of minutes, as the bottle's making its way back around the circle, uh, the effects started to kick in of alcohol. And I instantly, in that moment, and I didn't understand it then, but looking back, I do now, that in that moment, I had arrived. And probably found validation in that bottle. Yep. Yep. It was, it was the calming. It quieted the voices in my little head. It, it made me feel accepted. All of a sudden, I didn't need their acceptance. I felt that emotional numbing to the point where I'm good. And then I acted in certain ways that they thought was cool. Yeah. Right? So and it was so a win-win. Well, right, right. It was perfect win. I was in heaven, man. And and I I instantly, and again, looking back, I, I know now that, that I was thrown into a place where, and, and the program of, of recovery I work today talks about that I was drinking because I liked the effects produced. Yep. I, I didn't care anything about the taste. I wasn't drinking for the taste. I was drinking for that euphoric feel, that the, the effects produced by it. And so I, I was quickly uh, chasing drink. Uh, I wasn't, um, and I certainly not an everyday drinker is 13, um, but at least once a week, twice a week, I was finding a way to, to get alcohol. And when I did drink, I was drinking, right? Hiding it from my parents, but, but I was uh, drinking my face off, if you will. My parents didn't have alcohol in the home. And so if I was acting a little funny, um, I, I, I don't know. I think I probably kept my distance enough to where they never smelled it. And they, I, somehow, somehow I never got caught with it as a kid. Um, but back then it was easy to go stand. I didn't need an older kid to buy it for me or a friend. You could go stand outside of the 7-Eleven with 10 bucks and just find somebody walking in. Hey, man, you give me a case of beer? And they would. It wasn't a big deal. You know, it was, it was mid-90s then. And so it was not an issue at all, early 90s, mid-90s, to get a kid, you know, a case of beer. It was kind of one of those kids are just being kids right. type things. So I was at 13, and then for a couple of years, it was just alcohol. And I remember at 15 years old, um, I had my wisdom teeth removed. And there was my first exposure to narcotics. Right. I had um, a script of, of Lortab uh, for the pain. And I remember after waking up, well, for one, I remember going to sleep with the gas, getting my wisdom teeth. I was like, this is great, man. <laughs> This it is, is amazing. Awesome. It is amazing. <laughs> it is amazing. And listen, I always tell folks, especially early on um, in recovery, I said, first off, I want to remove the stigma from you that you were crazy for turning to drugs and alcohol. Because first, it's okay to not be okay. And second off, anybody that says drugs and alcohol aren't, at least at the beginning, fun and feel good is lying to you. Yeah. They are. It's great at the beginning. Yeah. Problem is, is when I burn my life to the ground yeah. afterward, that's, that's when it becomes a problem. Right. But, you know... Um, Early on, it does feel good, and, and that gas felt great, man. I loved it. And then the prescription afterward, I think I probably was okay within a day or so and didn't necessarily need the prescription anymore, but you better believe that I took every last right. one of those. Every last one of them and was lying about the pain I was in at home when I'd say, you know, I need to take another one. Man, it's still hurting. And to the point where, where and, and my parents were so, my family as a whole were so naive and oblivious to to addiction and alcoholism that they didn't even. Right. I say I'm in extra pain, and they're thinking, "What's wrong with that doctor? Did he right. screw up the oral surgery?" Not, hmm. I wonder if there's a problem here. Right. Um, and so, a a big part of what I do today is is helping educate parents um, on that. You know, watch out for some of the things, and I share some of the red flags for me of this early brewing. 
um, person, young person that was already showing some pretty solid signs of substance use disorder. Right. Well, and I wonder, even in the innocence of a child, um, if they even realize it. I mean, I think there are kids that do like, okay, I get this pill, I feel this way, I'm going to, you know, that addictive behavior is just like immediate. And then I'm trying to think maybe about myself at that age and having my wisdom teeth out. And if I would be able to connect, to connect that, right? Because there's still that element of of innocence. You're not doing it to rebel. I mean, like you said, who doesn't want the gas? I mean, if I take this and have some, you know, chicken fingers and a milkshake, life is great. Why wouldn't I want to do another one? Right. Well, and you, you start to fall into those, especially those of us um, that that have that struggle with substance use disorder. Uh, we quickly learn one is too many, a thousand is never enough. Because in my brain, right, my brain goes: if one is good, two is better. Three will be great. Four might get me right to where I want to be. And when I feel where I want to be, a normal person might say, hmm, I should hold right here or not take anymore. But for me, when I start to feel good with something, for me, my brain says, hit the gas. Let's go more. (laughs) Right? Absolutely. Until I black out, pass out, or run out. And toward the end of my drinking career, uh, I was a professional alcoholic and I didn't run out. I didn't run out. So, and, but we'll, you know, we'll get to that down the road. Alcohol certainly today is, is my primary. Um, but towards the end of my drinking career, I became a garbage can junkie. That's how I refer to myself. You know, if you put it in front of me, I was going to do it. Right. Um, so anyway, this, this deal as a teenager, uh, just constantly chasing something, anything to escape the way I felt. And here's where another real problem fell in. I noticed when I had that, whether it was a pill or a little bit of marijuana, or some alcohol in me, I didn't act in ways that got me in trouble. I was able to toe that line at home. When I took those pills, I was an angel. I did exactly what I was asked to do when I was asked to do it and didn't have a problem. And it was the craziest thing. And I noticed that even as in adulthood, is if I need to get motivated to do something, particularly do what, I, what I'm supposed to do, if I take a substance into my body, it makes accomplishing that task a whole lot easier. So there's less reason for your parents to kind of be suspicious because you're using and you're also behaving Mm -hmm. like a perfect angel. Man, I I hope it's not a phase. He sure is is behaving properly. The ways things things we've been on him to do for years, college applications, all this stuff. I'm all of a sudden able to get that stuff knocked out. And they don't know any better. They don't understand. They just think I'm finally getting it. Finally, the years of finally if, growing up. The finally, the years <laughs> of if if you don't quit crying, I'm going to give you to cry something to cry about is paying off. Yeah. And so it reinforces that they think they're doing the They've right. They've done thing. a great job. Yep. Yep. And they have no idea. And again, yes, my parents were abusive. Also, they thought they were doing what's best. I believe the two conflicting things can coexist. Mm-hmm. Um. It's it's reinforcing for them also that that they need to that's that was the right way to parent, um, and even today as I've tried to restore relationships with them, they can't see it and they refuse to a lot. They're very much pray the pain away types, yeah. and for them to see oh well you turned out okay anyway you turned out good anyway, 
um, just reinforces that. And it's like that whole agreed to disagree <clears throat> sure. because whether we like it or not, it is what it is in that um, there is a generational aspect to that. Well, and for them, I think that, that it might be a little more along the lines of we can just agree that you're wrong. <laughs> but uh, yeah, agree to disagree. Well, as a parent, that's easier. Sure. You know, it's easier for me to sure. look at my kids who've right. messed up and say, well, no, we're actually just going to agree that you're wrong and I'm right because I'm the parent. Right. right. And I know right. best. It's your problem. I have no role in this. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. So you're 15. Mm-hmm. Things are going well. You're getting chores done around the house. Did you end up in the military um, forcefully? Was that kind of a, it's this or nothing? Mm-hmm. How did we get there? Well, the recruiters, um, I come from a, from a pretty long military family. Everybody, um, tracing back, you know, our genealogy and things, everybody was in the military. You know, most, the re- most recent generations, my grandfather fought in World War II, fought his way through the Pacific. I uh, was a Bataan Death March survivor. Um, his cousin, um, his cousin was, was, you know, a hero, uh, Pearl Harbor, and there's actually still a commissioned USS Laboon today, <clears throat> a naval destroyer that's in, in the Atlantic fleet. Uh, my dad, while not wartime, served honorably. He was a commissioned officer. My uncle did. And so everybody in my family, it was it was kind of a natural thing. So when I saw the recruiters um, at school and, and expressed interest, it wasn't, it wasn't an issue. It was like, okay, cool. And then again, my parents are thinking, oh, well, it it paid off. Look at him. He's going to go do something with his life. He wants to join the military. And so um, when I joined, my parents actually had to sign a permission slip for me because at 17, you can, you can go through the process of joining the military at 17 with parent parental permission. And so they did, they signed that permission slip. And, but again, for me, that, that feelings of not enough, um, I think looking back, I did it to make other people proud and less about patriotism. Patriotism came for me later through my experiences. I feel, I think that that started to grow and develop, but, but it was later on. I think originally my reason for joining the army is it's what family does and I want to make everybody proud. So that's what I did, but it wasn't, uh, enough for me to be just in the armed forces, just in the military. I had to be that guy on the poster or the cool guy in the video um, with uh, the night vision on, faster open down the rock face with a rifle in one hand and ready to go to war. I had to be that guy. And so when I went, I wanted to join with a ranger contract, uh, which I did. I did. I went and um, went to Army basic training, um, went to jump school, went through RIP, and and found myself in ranger regiment. I loved it. Uh, It was great. And then went to ranger school. Uh, shortly after, and at the end of my ranger school experience, 9-11 happened. Um, I remember actually sitting, we were cleaning guns at the end of ranger school. So, and in, in, in to back up, you know, to add the, the substance abuse piece in there, I, I really, being an initial entry training, there's not really an opportunity um, to abuse substances, and I had a focus going on there, and so that kind of became back burner. Certainly nights off, or when, when we were able to go out and, and jump school anyway, yeah, I was out drinking hard. Right. Um and everything kind of happened so quickly through my training that that uh, when September 11th happened, we found ourselves very quickly deployed um, in Afghanistan. And, and how old were you then? Uh, eighteen. 
18 years old. Yeah, about 18 and a half. I loved it though. Like it was great. When I say that I found my niche, and I and I think some people and and you can call it superstitious or weird or whatever, but I think there are certain folks that are pre predisposed to to have like that warrior nature. Um, and I kind of joke that it comes from my Scandinavian Celtic roots. Um, you know, the, the Viking Celtic warrior and all that. Um, I don't know where it comes from. Maybe it's just a personality. It doesn't matter, but I, I had it. Um, and I still have it in a lot of ways, but I was just naturally, especially in combat at war was, was great at that. Um, I'm not going to lie and say I wasn't ever afraid, but when I felt that fear, it pushed me further, not backwards. Um, my, my, ability and desire to close with and destroy the enemy was, was, um, exceptional. And I found myself quickly moving up. Um, that first deployment though, <clears throat> the, the first few weeks of that prior to the fall of Kandahar was awesome. It was nonstop gunfights. I mean, there were times where we weren't just fighting house to house. We were fighting room to room within houses and buildings. And, and I loved every minute of it. I was absolutely in the zone with chaos going on around me because I think it quieted the voices in my own head right. a little bit, gave me that focus. And, and I was so used to, to, to thriving in, in the chaos in, in my own life that when I was presented with chaos outside of it, I, it just it was at home for me. Yeah. Um, with my back against the wall and stresses around me, it was perfect. Um, but within a few weeks, we quickly shifted to um, more of the traditional ranger role of um, support to a unit that's bigger and better, a higher-tiered unit. And so what, what went from um, kicking doors or being in a stack was I'm now on a rooftop facing out when all of the cool stuff is behind me um, in the middle on the X, what we call it, on the objective. And I started to get that feelings of now what I know is restless, irritable, discontented. Gotcha. Um, I wasn't happy where I was anymore when a week ago I loved it. But now it's not what I want it to be because I am a real live alcoholic and drug addict through and through. I want what I want when, when I want, want it, it. Mm-hmm. and I want it right now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I don't have that. I don't have that instant um, high-speed fix of adrenaline anymore. Yeah. Um, you know, you can look at the the scientific science side of it. I'm not having those the serotonin, the dopamine dumps. I'm not having all that from adrenaline spikes and lows. I don't have that anymore as much as I did, and I'm I'm frustrated with it. I think whenever you're talking about like just thriving in chaos, I feel like a lot of alcoholics and addicts, we do that well because we're addicted to that chaos, you know? And so we handle it pretty well, you know, while while everybody else might be freaking out inside or externally or whatever, you know, we're like, hell yeah, we like this stuff, you know? Little parts of our life that would cause a normal person to to be in the fetal position and cry. I've got seven of those going on around me. <laughs> yeah, We've got like, a constant storm of chaos and insanity, yeah. but somehow I manage it. Yeah. Not not necessarily very well. My life is still in the complete trash can, but I manage it well enough that I'm I'm still here yeah. and I'm still grinding and, and hustling all these. Yeah, absolutely. You thrive in chaos. Yeah, I think even in, internally. I'm okay with this, you know. I'm not really phased by my life might be burning down around me, but like, <laughs> it's okay. Absolutely, I'm, I'm pressing forward. You know. Yeah, today sucked. I'll figure it out tomorrow. Yeah, I'll figure it out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and with regards, you know, back to the to the military side of that, I, I again, I thrived in that, and 
when I didn't have what I wanted, the, the level of chaos I wanted and the excitement, and I felt like I was no longer good enough or cool enough, I want to move on. Right. But the career path in the military, in the army anyway, um, to be one of those bigger and better units is, um, you know, it was another three deployments in five years in service. Help me understand and our listeners maybe as well, like the next best thing um, that you found yourself in the middle of in your military career. Could that also be the same thing um, in addiction? Like what drives addiction? Like maybe you start with alcohol or or this prescription drug, and it's like, okay, well, I'm a little too comfortable or complacent here. What's the next thing? Do you feel like those two kind of operate together at that time, especially with your where you were in the military? Well, I definitely do now. Looking back, I hadn't thought about it like that before. <laughs> Oops. No. <laughs> No, that, I love that. I'm trying to put myself I'm I love that. in your I've, shoes, and it's like you were on that roof, and it was like, yeah, okay, great, but what's the next best thing? And that might be how addiction works for, for some people. And just trying to get people who aren't addicts to understand what that feeling is because we're humans, and by nature we're constantly wanting the next best thing. Right. You know, the grass is always greener. So maybe that's the same <clears throat> role that that desire um, plays in addiction? It's, I'm, my mind's blown right now. <laughs> I, you're absolutely right. And I had never necessarily drawn the lines of that correlation. I'd never connected those dots before, but you're absolutely right. It's a reason that, you know, as a young kid, smoking weed gets you high and gets you excited. And then, hey, somebody has a pill and then you go to blackout drinking. And then, you know, a person that starts in the emergency room with a narcotics prescription opiate pain medications, you know, fast forward two years, extreme example is homeless, banging heroin under under a bridge. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm chasing that next best thing. That's crazy. I never I never thought of it like that, though, in, in my military years of, see, back then, I thought of it as I have the drive to be better, ne- not necessarily the the, the mental storm brewing the emotional storm brewing of i need to be better because where i am is not enough and it's worn off the high hair has worn off i need to get it wow and you have so you're many you're absolutely right you have so many reasons to crave that be better it starts from you as a child mm-hmm. so it's so much more than the thrill in the military or the high off the substance it stems from deep, deep down oh, yeah. of just constantly trying to attain that, be better, and it's like an endless pit that you'll never fill. Yeah, never. Because I wasn't okay. And the only way to cope with that is to keep doing it. Right. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. My country's not going to be proud of me unless I'm this. My, I'm not going to have a... a a good girl in my life, unless I do this, I'm not going to have any of these things unless I am, boom, because I'm not able to look at myself and be happy with the man in the mirror, even long before, you know, we say in, in, you know, addiction and and alcoholism, when you're working, you know, say you're working a 12 step program, one of the top person, top people on my list of resentments is me because I don't like the man in the mirror, but, but I didn't like the man in the mirror a long time before I was in full blown active addiction. And alcoholism. Are you in a place now to know that you're not responsible for the who that man in the mirror is or was? Absolutely. I'm in a place now where where I'm able to look at my life and and uh, be happy 
with who I am, mm-hmm. with where I am. And, and also additionally to understand that, that any thing that I've been through or any, any thing good or bad that I can use to be useful, um, in my own personal spiritual path to, to my God or to, to any other struggling alcoholic and addict I'm grateful for. So let's go back to you on the roof. Yeah. And you don't really like where you are. <clears throat> well, I've got to have that next fix, right? right. And so the, the unit in, in the Army anyway that's going to give me that next fix is another five years in the military and another three deployments. There's no way. Like, I'm not, I'm not doing that. There's no way a, a young, budding alcoholic like me is going to wait that amount of time. And so I'm frustrated with that. It's it's irritating to me, but I'm already planning, okay, what's what are some other things I can do? I don't know. So I'm I'm not necessarily consciously thinking I'm gonna keep my ears to the streets and see what else is out there, but I am. And I'm walking into the gym one day, we get back to uh, Hunter Army Hunter Army Airfield in Savannah, Georgia. We get back home and I'm walking in the gym and there's a sign, um, there's flyers on the door that says, you know, NSW Naval Special Warfare is recruiting. Um, they're trying to, to plus up and add uh, SEAL platoon, SEAL to each team. And so I see that, and they're doing a program um, that they ran for about two years. They call Green to Blue to where um, young special operators in all the, in the other branches, Army special operations, young rangers, um, Air Force, uh, Marines, young MARSOC guys, you could go and screen to the on-post Naval Special Warfare guys over at the U.S. SOCOM, United States Special Operations Command folks. Um, you could go and screen, essentially try out. You did a, a swim, a run, a bunch of pull-ups, um, a, a long hike with a heavy backpack, a ruck march, um, all these different physical events, and then you took a psyche valve. And if you passed all that, you could do the paperwork and essentially transition over to um, the Navy with the opportunity to go to buds. The, th- the deal was there's two, one, you tacked another five years on the end of your contract. Once you finished training, so they wanted five years out of you actually operating, not to include the year and a half training time training pipeline. Um, so you had another five years tacked on once you finished training, which was no problem for me because I loved it. And then the other thing was, is if you failed or if you quit, you went needs of the Navy. Um, so that means if they need a sonarman to sit in the front end of a submarine for the next five years, that's what you're going to go do. Well, for me, I was never a quitter in that regard. I was going to say, I don't see you quitting. <laughs> no, I was never a quitter. Um, I was never a quitter, so that wasn't a concern to me. But I thought, man, if I get hurt, um, that could be an issue for me. But uh, I'm not really even the kind to say, ouch, this hurts, let me let me duck out of training for a bit. I'm, I'm the type that's, you're going to kill me to get me to stop, um, which bodes well, um, for a young guy in buds. And so I did, I passed everything, crushed it and went over, uh, transitioned over to the Navy. You have to go to this. It's kind of funny stories. You have to go to this, um, the green to blue, you do a four week course at Great Lakes, um, in Illinois and they teach you Navy lingo, like in the army, we say group attention and in the Navy, they say attention on deck. And I constantly screwed it up, but I didn't care because I love the physical, physical punishment. <laughs> it became something I craved. Another addiction. There we go. When I'm getting, we call it scuffed up when I'm getting scuffed up and I'm rolling left and right in the dirt and in the sand and, and running around. Cause I'm getting punished. I mean, to me, I'm like, sweet, you're punishing me by making me stronger. Awesome. 
<laughs> right? And so for me, it didn't translate over to punished. That's what I was used to from the time when I was very young. Right, that makes sense. Physical pain is punishment. I love it because I'm going to defy you and show you that this isn't hurting me. Yeah. Wow. Transitioned over yeah. perfectly for me. And also, that's the first time I had a, um alcohol-related incident when I was in the military. I didn't get in trouble, never had any charges, never had any any non-judicial punishment or anything. Everything was swept under the rug. Uh, I came back. I was really, really drunk still on Monday morning. We were going for a five-mile run and then a two-mile swim, mm. and I crushed it. I came back drunk, and they were like, you, you know, you, and, and I'm going to keep it real and keep it clean, on, you know, here on the podcast, but um, you, you know, you idiot, you came back drunk. We're going to make you regret that. And I absolutely crushed the run. Um, I, I crushed the swim and reeked of whiskey the entire time, but I was near the top of the pack. So then it went from, we're going to destroy you. You made a poor decision to, man, you were meant for this kind of work to being celebrated. So then you're rewarded. Yeah. I'm being celebrated because I'm now, look at this guy. He's a complete savage because he came back drunk and did this. And granted, yeah, I, I mean, that's pretty savage. You can come back that drunk and still That has to be from perform. your Viking lineage. It does. It does. Something. <laughs> something. That's the Scandinavian something roots coming out. Something about you and the water. Yeah. Okay, but we have to unpack that. Yeah. How does somebody as intoxicated as you're describing perform physically like that? I think it's that's mental. Okay. I mean, granted, you ha you have to be in shape before, because I've broken this down myself. How I'm able to do that? How anyone with that warrior mentality? Because I'm not alone in that. There's a lot of guys that are able to do that, and that comes from one. You yes, okay, you're in shape before, but two, it comes the natural defiant side of things. Of I'm going to prove you wrong. I'm going to push through this. I'm going to challenge myself and see how mentally tough I am. I used to do that all the time. I would go get absolutely hammered, drunk. And wake up feeling like absolute trash the next morning, pound a glass, and go for a run on purpose. Like, let me, we live the, our lives by this idea that we'll civilize our mind and make savage our body. And I translated make savage the body is see how physically, how much I can physically punish myself and keep pushing. So it's the difference between two drunk guys walk in a bar, they both get in a fight. One gets his butt kicked. The other one comes out complete savage. Yeah. Like it could be just as. Absolutely. And that trans you're right. And, you know, to translate it over for maybe a normal drinker or mm, not a normal drinker, but uh, but another person struggling with substance use that, that isn't, wasn't in the military at that level, it translates over perfectly. You go out, you go on a bender and you wake up and you think, man, early on, Look how much I was able to drink and your friends slap you on the back and say, man, I can't believe you did all that crazy stuff last night. Oh, man, well, let's see what happens next weekend. And it's a joke. Another notch in the belt. Yeah, right. and it's a joke. And it's funny. Thanks for listening to Hope Ahead, where we share stories of help and hope for people facing addiction and mental health challenges right here in our community. You can find more information by visiting thevirtuecenter.org or you can find Hope Ahead and the Virtue Center on Instagram and Facebook. Sometimes when I walk these halls, I feel like I'm not alone. This isn't where you live, but this is your home now.